Bibles and turn once again uh, to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We're continuing our study of the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. We're uh, looking at verses, uh, let's see, John uh, 27 or 28 through uh, 37 this morning. Uh, 28 through 37. Let me remind you before I read that this is God's good and kind and gracious word that is to you and for you today. So give attention to it. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were, there, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We see in this passage the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, in the Greek, it's actually three words. Here, it is two words that Jesus wept. Uh, and I just want to make a little note about uh, translation. That uh, the original text of the scriptures obviously did not have the numbers in there. So the verses have been added later. They're there for our help, but they're not inspired by God. Uh, and uh, but they are very helpful for us. And uh, as groups of people would be doing the translations, they would have individuals that would be working out these translations from the Greek to the language that they were writing in. Uh, and and what we have done is we've received these texts from them uh, and with their annotations and notes. Uh, and and depending on the translator and how they would operate and how they would work, uh, they would do long sentences or short sentences. Um, and they would try to get as much done in a day as they could. Sometimes our verses are, our, yeah, our verses are um, long because they had a lot of time. Sometimes they're short because they had a shorter amount of time. But I think what you see here is the translator, when he was doing this work, when he translated the words, Jesus wept. He stopped to take in what it meant that God himself wept in this time. Something for us to be mindful of as we approach this text. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. We thank you, Father, that we see the very heart of Jesus. That we see the way that he approaches his people in both his divinity and his humanity. Father, I pray that we would be captivated with Jesus today, that we would see him in his glory, and we would understand his great love for us, 
Father, we thank you for inspiring your servant John to write these words down that we can see and behold our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were going to make a religion, how would you start it? No doubt you would start it with God. Man has been doing this since the beginning. I've heard some, I don't know who first said it, but somebody said that God created man in his image and ever since man has been returning the favor, attempting to make God in his own image. And so we, are, we have a world full of people that are super religious, hyper religious. Indeed, no one in this world is not religious. Everyone is religious. But what men have done is they have taken God and they have made him in their own image or the God that they want. And God and all of these other religions in the world tend to come down to uh, one or two or one of two types of beings. God is either transcendent, so above and over all of creation that he is removed from creation and has nothing to do with creation. He has created the world and stepped back because he is so holy, so different, so other that he can't be involved in his creation. Otherwise, he would be tainted by it. You see that in the religion of Islam. You see that also in, uh, in Mormonism and some other uh, religions that are out there in the world. You also see it a lot in Eastern religions that are more mystical and not personal. The other uh, way that you can present God and men have typically presented God is they have presented a God who is imminent, a God who is with us, but not transcendent. He isn't all-powerful, all-knowing, or any of those things, but he is with us. And you see this in a lot of other religions or a lot of religions, uh, especially those that are uh, of a New Age variety in many ways, but also in a lot of liberal Christianity, they have reinvented God so that God is imminent, but not transcendent. Now, in both of those cases, there is something true about what they're trying to present. Because as God has revealed himself in his word, he has told us that he is transcendent, that he is outside of his creation, that he did create the world and is not to be confused with the world that he created. But in the word, God has also revealed himself to be imminent with his creation, that he is with us. And so what you see in these other religions is they're trying to grasp on to who God is in his fullness, but they can't conceive of a God who is both transcendent and imminent. And in this passage today, we see the person and work of Jesus Christ in his transcendent glory as the God man, but also in his imminence as he is with us as the God man as well. Again, this is the seventh sign in the book of John. This is the sign that John has been leading up to as a way to reveal to us exactly who Jesus is. And this is kind of the benchmark sign, the one by which you need to judge exactly who Jesus is. And he's given us a whole lot of details in, these, uh, in this passage we learned that he delayed getting to Lazarus, that he, he withheld getting there. He was about 100 miles to the north when he got news that Lazarus was sick, was sick. And then he didn't come until Lazarus had died. And Lazarus was a good friend of his, but he delayed coming. And then when he comes, what happens? Martha comes out to meet him. 
And Martha makes demands of Jesus, and Jesus interacts with Martha. We saw that last time, and now today we see Martha's sister Mary interacting with Jesus. We again are being invited into this private conversation. We are being invited to understand the heart of Jesus through this person of Mary. And we see here that the God-man, Jesus Christ, grieves with those who truly grieve. And in that, we get great comfort. So uh, I want us to look at this passage in three ways today. First of all, we're going to see Jesus calling in verses 28 through 31. Jesus calling. And secondly, I don't like this, this title, but it, uh, it's the only, way, only one I could think of. We see Jesus feeling in verses 32 through 34. If you have a better title for this second point, I'll gladly take it. But we see Jesus feeling in verses 32 through 34. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus weeping in verses 35 through 37. So we're going to begin this morning with Jesus calling. And you see that there in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. All right, so what did she say? Well, you look right above at verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into this world. She gives this magnificent confession of who Jesus Christ is. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah who is coming into the world. She makes that confession and then she immediately goes and gets her sister. She goes in private and she says, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And I want you to look at something really important that's happening here. Martha's demeanor has shifted. Once again, look up at verse 21. Martha jumps up without being called, goes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Basically saying, do what I want. She comes demanding things of Jesus and has to be reminded that he is the one that commands, not her. And now in verse 28, what does she do? We see Martha getting up and going to Mary in obedience to Jesus. This is a little part that's left out. John is wanting us to read between the lines here to see that what Jesus has done is he has commanded Martha to go and get Mary. And what does Martha do? She immediately obeys her master and she goes and she gets Mary. It's an amazing thing because Martha has been reminded, maybe for the millionth time, that she is not the one that is in charge, but Jesus Christ is. So what is the command? The command is, go get Mary. I want to have a private conversation with her. Look at how Martha identifies Jesus. She calls him the teacher. It's not a teacher, but it's the teacher. And that is a fascinating way for Martha to identify Jesus. Because in this day, rabbis did not teach women. They did not go out of their way to teach women anything. And the fact that Martha has been taught by Jesus and calls him not just a rabbi, but the rabbi, and that the rabbi, the teacher, wants an audience with you, Mary. That is an amazing thing. Mary uh, was a single woman. She had no family. She did not have a husband. She did not have children. Now, she was part of a wealthy family, and so that would have given her some amount of status. 
But because she did not have a husband, it meant that she had no standing in public. And because she didn't have children, it meant that she would have had no one to provide for her going forward. And so there would have been real uh, cultural and social problems for her. Men would not have, have requested an audience with Mary unless there was something bad happening. But here is Jesus saying, I want to talk to Mary. I want to talk to this woman that the rest of the world would have said is basically no one and nothing. And Jesus says, no, I want an audience with her. I want to talk to her. I want to see her. That's an amazing thing that we see here. Now, Jesus calls Mary to himself And Jesus does not stand on any kind of cultural conventions or cultural traditions. He's not worried about any of the things that would have gotten in the way of of Mary coming to Jesus. He says, come and speak to me in private. Because it's a matter of life and death for Mary. Not just Lazarus' life and death, but even Mary's life and death. When it comes to cultural conventions... And traditions and the way things ought to be done, Jesus does not worry about those things. I remember uh, when I was about 13 years old, I had to have surgery on my knee. Um, I blew up my knee playing football, flag football, but it was football, right? So um, I had to have surgery on my knee. Um, and I remember going into the surgery, uh, going into the little waiting room, the, pre, the prep room, and the nurse coming in saying, okay, take off your clothes and put on this gown. My parents were there, and I thought to myself, are y'all going to let her talk to me like this? She can't tell me to do this. This is inappropriate. I'm not taking off my clothes. No, I can't do that. Mom, Dad, step in, do something. And I remember my mom in that moment gently looking at me and saying, Kelly, this really is a matter of life and death. If your clothes are on while you're having surgery and something goes wrong, it could be very bad for you. Take off your clothes. Get in the gown. Yes, ma'am. So I did it. When it's a matter of life and death, we get rid of social conventions. And that's what Jesus does. He calls Mary to himself and says, let's not worry about what society says about this meeting, about you, Mary, because you need to meet with me. Come to me. What's the application for us? Jesus is calling us this morning. Jesus calls for us To meet with him. But he doesn't call for us to be better people. He doesn't call for us to work harder. He doesn't call for us to be nice or even to be good. Yes, those things are expected of Christians and we should be those things. But Jesus is calling for us to come to be with him. To be overwhelmed by him in his presence. He is calling on us to simply be with him. Because if we are with Jesus, Jesus knows that when we gaze upon him in his beauty, then everything else in this world will not matter. Jesus is calling for Mary to come and have an audience with him, to meet with him. To bring all of the things that are troubling her to him in order for Jesus to care for her. He is calling for you to come to Him today. Not come and be something else, but simply come to Jesus 
to be with Jesus, to gaze upon Jesus, to hear from Jesus. First thing we see is Jesus calling. Secondly, in verse 32, you begin to see Jesus feeling. Jesus feeling. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Mary makes a statement to Jesus. She doesn't come asking a question. She simply says something to him. I think we say very similar things to Jesus at times. Lord, if you had been here, this thing would not have happened. Lord, if you only had intervened, would intervene, then my children wouldn't be the way that they are. Lord, if you had intervened, then my marriage would would have been saved. Lord, if you would not have intervened, if you would have intervened, if you would have stepped in in this moment, then my life would be better. That's essentially what Mary is saying. Lord, if you only had been there, you could have prevented this hardship that has come into my life. That's a harsh statement for Mary to make to Jesus. It's a harsh statement for us to make to Jesus as well, and yet we do it all the time. But what's interesting is, Martha had said the exact same thing to Jesus. If you look again at verse 31, Lord, or I'm sorry, 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same thing. Now, what happens whenever Martha says that to Jesus? Well, Jesus then begins a probing theological conversation with Martha. He begins to ask her things, or or at least state things. You know, the resurrection is true. Don't you believe that? And she has to answer, yes, I believe that there is a resurrection. And Jesus then goes on and says other things like, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus meant that conversation with Martha to be a couple of things. It was meant to be a rebuke to Martha for approaching Jesus in the way that she did. It was also meant to be a lesson for her to learn about who Jesus really was. And ultimately, it was meant to produce faith in Martha. A faith in Jesus. A confidence in Jesus. But what happens whenever Mary says the exact same thing? Do you get a deep probing theological conversation? Do you get a rebuke from Jesus? Do you get any of that? You don't. Look at what happens. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he says, where have you laid him? Jesus does not address Mary with any theological concerns. He simply asks a question. After he feels Something immensely. Well, why does Jesus not confront and rebuke Mary? I think it's the posture that Mary brings to Jesus that makes all the difference. What did Mary do? She came and she fell at Jesus' feet, worshiping Him, bringing all of her troubles, confessing to Him her weaknesses, and saying something that is absolutely terrible, yes, but coming to Jesus in worship. Whereas Martha came to Jesus demanding, the posture makes all the difference in the world. If we, could, uh, if we were there at the time when we saw Martha approach Jesus, 
I guarantee you she would have had a tone in her voice. Now moms, you know something about tone, don't you? You know what that tone is. And even if your children says something that is absolutely fine, the tone really tells you what their heart is like. With Martha, we probably would have heard a tone with Jesus. Whereas with Mary, you don't get the tone of arrogance. You simply get worship. Now then we're told that Jesus, in response to Mary, that he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I just want to say that of all the English translations that we have, uh, of the English translation here, um, that that is the Ole Miss football of English translations, meaning this, it is completely underwhelming. Okay? It doesn't capture really what's happening there. It doesn't tell us about what's really going on because there are lots of different emotions that can cause you to be deeply moved, right? You can be deeply moved. And because I'm a man, I had to look up different emotions because I don't know the name. I don't know how to name emotions. I had to look them up. You know, you can be deeply moved to um, to anger. I'm sorry, to happiness or to fear or to sadness, or to anxiety. You can be deeply moved to all of these different kinds of fear. Well, well, to what emotion was Jesus deeply moved to? The word that's actually used there, the deeply moved, the word that, that our English translation translates into deeply moved, means something like what a horse does when he snorts at you. That's the, that's the, 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 the uh, origins of this word, where a horse is not just named, but he snorts. And you know, the, the moisture comes out of his nose because he's trying to tell you something like, back off, right? And the word in Greek means that he was moved, Jesus was moved to anger. It wasn't just that Jesus was deeply moved and was sad. No, Jesus actually was moved to anger in this moment. That's what that first word means. And then the second word, it says he was, um, he was deeply troubled. That, that, that down into his soul, he felt this emotion to the point where he was angered and was going to respond to it. You know, sometimes your emotions get the better of you. And you feel it deep down, an emotion deep down, and you have to respond to it. That's what John is actually getting at here. That Jesus is so moved by Mary weeping and by all of these Jews that are coming and weeping that he is moved to anger. Now why anger? Are you angry when a loved one dies? Are you angry when a loved one is no longer there with you? More than likely, most of us, if we think back on our emotions, would say, no, anger is not the emotion that I feel. We feel sadness. We feel loneliness. But anger... No. So why is Jesus angry at this funeral of his friend? Well, it's because Jesus understands the real tragedy of Lazarus' death. We might understand exactly what's going on with Mary because we've had loved ones pass away. We understand the, the sadness, the loneliness, and all of those emotions. But see, Jesus is looking at this from a little bit bigger perspective. A week from this moment, Jesus will be going to the cross. Jesus will be going 
not in anger, but in love to the cross. And why is Jesus going to go to the cross? It's because of the effects of sin on the world. It's because of what sin has done to this world. It's because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death entered in and reigned. Jesus understands that the reason why his friend died and the reason why Mary is in grief is because sin is so heinous that it requires death. And that makes Jesus angry because Jesus hates sin. It is a good thing for Jesus to hate sin. It is his hatred for sin and his love for his people that will, that will drive him to the cross. Um, that word troubled in spirit, it's the same word that John uses to describe the waters of, of the pool in, uh, in John chapter 5. It's, uh, it's meant to show something of chaos uh, and commotion. Jesus feels this deep down inside of himself. And he goes... And he experiences, I'm sorry, he experiences this anger because he knows exactly what sin requires. I want you to understand that we have this kind of God this morning. There are some people that say, well, if God experiences emotions like us, then that limits his greatness. But would you want a God who doesn't understand what it means to feel the way that you feel? Actually, I think this shows us the greatness of our God. He knows what you're experiencing when you experience these sorts of things. It does not lessen his greatness. It actually magnifies his greatness. It does not limit his divinity, but shows the extent of his divinity. That our God can feel these emotions, the same ones that we do, but he responds to them appropriately. That's the real problem with emotions is that we feel things very deeply, but we respond to them inappropriately. We need to realize that this is our God and behold that he is deeply moved and responds appropriately to it. How does he respond? He responds by going to the cross. That is good news for us this morning. But it also reminds us that since sin requires death, that we need to take sin seriously. That our sin requires death as well. And the good news for you who are in Christ is that Christ has taken your sin on himself. He has faced the death that you deserve so that you do not have to. That also means that if Jesus hates sin, you should hate it as well. You should hate the sin that is inside of you. And you should hate the sin that is inside of your loved ones. And then learn how to respond appropriately to that deep-seated hatred for the same things that God hates. The last thing we see is Jesus weeping. Again, in verse um, 35, the shortest verse, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, why does he weep at this point? He knows Lazarus is dead. He's seen the crying and all of those things. What's the impetus for it? Well, in the verse 34, you see the reason why Jesus weeps now. Where have you laid him? 
The fact that Jesus has to ask this question shows the very depths of the unnatural nature of of death. The God of the universe has to ask a question, not for his benefit. Jesus knows where Lazarus is because he's God. But for the benefit of those around him, where have you laid him? Where is the grave? It should cause you to reflect and ask, where is the grave? Where is my grave? Where is my death? Jesus asked, where is Lazarus' grave? Where has he been laid? And at that, he weeps over the nature of death. There's nothing more unnatural in this world than death. And Jesus knows it, and he weeps over it. He sees these dear ones crying and weeping because of this death. And he understands that life is hard. And if Jesus weeps over the hardness of this life and he's God and can do something about it, shouldn't we weep as well over the difficulties of this world? And then John leaves us on a cliffhanger. John is a master storyteller. He then shifts focus away from Jesus, away from Mary, to the Jews. Remember, the Jews had come from Jerusalem two miles away to come and mourn with Mary. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's a valid question. It's a good question. If he was so powerful, couldn't he have done something about this? Well, you see in this the doubt of the Jews. And the doubt from the Jews comes in uh, a couple different ways. Look, how they, look at how they, um, they answer him. In verse 34, they call him Lord. That's curious. You see, they understood something about Jesus and his power. They say, Lord, come and see. They, it's a they. <laughs> and they say, see how he loved him. Some of them are sentimental about Jesus. Some of them, they think, oh, well, isn't it sweet? And isn't Jesus sweet for caring so much about his friend? And then some of them are mocking as well. And they say, couldn't he have done anything? about oh, if he's so powerful, couldn't he have done anything about this? They know true things about Jesus. They know certain things about him. But their response to him tells you what their heart is like. We need to be careful about these two responses as well. We need to be careful about simply being sentimental about Jesus. There's nothing sentimental or nice or pleasant about Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he makes war with his enemies. And his enemies are death itself and anyone who takes up the banner of death. We don't need to be sentimental about our warrior king, our God-man king, Jesus Christ. There's nothing sentimental about him. But also, we need to be careful that we're not cynical in mocking of Jesus as well. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that Jesus actually is real. That all of his promises are true. That when we're going through really hard things in our life, that 
that Jesus really does love his people. And we need to be careful that we don't simply know true things about Jesus and then are cynical and mocking about who he is. We need to behold our king. King Jesus weeps with us this morning. He weeps with us. In conclusion, we have a God who is moved by our pain and our sin. And this morning, He is at work making all things right. How is He doing that? He's doing that through COVID. (laughs) He's doing that through the terrible events of the world and all the things that are happening. He's doing it through Silly things like mask mandates. He's doing it through all of the things that are going on in this world. Jesus Christ is making all things new. That is good news for us today. We have a God who knows, a God who cares, and a God who is at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of these things and and help us experience the great depths of Jesus' love for us as he weeps with us. Father, I pray that we would hate the things that Jesus hates and loves the, love the things that Jesus loves and that we would long for the day when death is finally defeated and we can behold Jesus face to face. We thank you for being our great God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.